When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package, but that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. All right, it's Film Study with Tim McCusick, a special episode as we are going to look back at Joe Flacco and some of the highlights of his career in Baltimore. If you've noticed, the news came out almost a week ago that Joe Flacco will be traded, but we wanted to give it some space, let all the conversation about whether or not Joe's good for Denver, let all that happen, and now we can look back and enjoy his thing. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing well. And now uh, we're joined by Michael as well. And I believe this is going to start being a regular thing, right? Uh, yeah, I hope so, Josh. Uh, thank you guys both for having me on again. And uh, yeah, I look forward to 
uh, kind of being a regular part of the show, at least as much as I can. And uh, this should be fun, uh, kind of a walk down memory lane and, um, you know, really a look back at, at a lot of great moments uh, from, from Joe Flacco's career. Yeah, and I'm excited that we can look at Joe, talk about Joe, and we don't have to do the Joe Lamar comparison today. We can just focus <laughs> on, let's just look back and enjoy, because you don't get a franchise quarterback all the time. No, you don't. The Ravens waited a long time. It's a good point to get that first franchise quarterback. And uh, Flacco was here for 11 years after the Ravens effectively walked the desert for 12 years. Actually, yeah, 12 years, 1996 through 2007, without that franchise quarterback. Vinny Testaverde was really the closest they came to a franchise quarterback during that period. Uh, some might say Steve McNair, but he honestly wasn't all that good. Testaverde in the first couple of years was pretty darn good. But uh, but after that, it was a long wait for Flacco. All right. Yeah, and I think he, he really kind of set or, or sort of reset the standard once he arrived here. Because, I mean, if you look back prior to this season, where, of course, they made the playoffs, but if you look back prior to this season to the previous couple of seasons where they didn't, and there were these calls for John Harbaugh's job and, you know, every year that they weren't making the playoff was a failure. Well, that was because of the success that the team had with Joe at quarterback. They'd had so much success early on that that bar was sort of reset. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. You know, it's like the end of the era kind of thing. Uh, and as a fan, uh, I'm kind of sad about it, to be quite honest about you, to be quite honest about it. But it'll be fun to look back and talk about some of these games. Yeah, he really did. We we can't forget just how great his time was here. But uh, he 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 won ten playoff games here. He's ten and five as a playoff quarterback. There are eight other NFL franchises that do not have as many playoff wins as Joe Flacco does. The Falcons and the Chiefs, in forty plus fewer more seasons, have exactly ten playoff wins. So. His his performance here is really remarkable, and yes, he was surrounded by a great defense for much of that time. Yes, those defenses contributed mightily to those wins, but Flacco did what was necessary to help put those games away, and we're, as we're going to talk through, he had some great moments, particularly in those playoff games. Right. All right, so there's a article up on Russell Street, uh, Ken, that you wrote, where you broke down uh, the 21 best games of Flacco's career. I'm guessing about 10 of them is play or playoff games, but uh, we'll get to it. And uh, Ken, let's just start. Let's get into it with number 21. Okay. So number 21, people remember back to December of 2016, the dolphins came to Baltimore. The Ravens were really on the edge of being knocked out of the playoff race at five and five Flacco had a huge day and a 38 to six win, including four touchdowns. Uh, that day, the Ravens won 38-6. to Everything was right again with the world. The camera shots from the sidelines constantly showed Flacco smiling and, and kind of winking at the camera because the, the offense had taken a lot of heat that season despite Flacco uh, was, was throwing at a record pace, meaning uh, in, in terms of the number of attempts, he had 672 in 2016. Uh, but the big highlight that day was a 53-yard crosser to Brashad Perriman that went the distance. And that was a little flash in Perriman's second season of maybe this guy is still going to be great. Yeah, I, I remember that play. Uh, captured my heart, if I'm being honest with you. It really captured my heart about Perriman. And I said, there it is. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what this guy can be capable of. Um, 
And of course, we know how that how that kind of turned out. But uh, no, great, great game uh, for Flacco on the offense in general. And I, I might be wrong about this, but wasn't there some sort of hubbub or a little bit of flack in the week leading up to this game? Uh, maybe something between Marty and Joe or at least perceived about throwing it too much or not throwing it enough. And um, I think they just came out guns blazing in this one. Yeah. I think it was kind of Joe's way to kind of say, hey, maybe I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Flacco had made some comments earlier in the year and maybe after, maybe before, maybe both, that they couldn't simply win by being a uh, game management offense and that, that they, they couldn't. I mean, the 2016 team is the one that had three shutouts. Am I thinking incorrectly or is that the 2000? That's the 2017 team. So anyway, you're right. The 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 things that there might have been some something between Morning Wagonham, I believe, did come out that week. Anyway, uh, we'll move on to the next one. But that was that's number 21 on my list. Um, number 20 is the uh, Ray Rice fourth and 29 play. That's how we remember that win at San Diego in November of 2012. But there was a lot more to it than that. In the last five minutes, the Ravens trailed 13 to three. They rallied for 10 points in the fourth quarter, which is a lot of Flacco moving them down the field. And the one great play from Rice, Rice said, you know, pardon other plays as well. But also Flacco had a good overtime where he drove them from their own 11 to the Chargers 20. And that included a 31-yard completion on third and 10 from right around midfield that kept that drive alive and, and gave the Ravens the, the, the winning score late in overtime in that game. So they, they had multiple times where they could have failed to get the win uh, in that November 2012 game. And, and it was a big part of the Ravens championship season. Yeah. And now current Ravens safety, Eric Weddle was in chargers safety, Eric Weddle, who unfortunately, well, I guess if you're a chargers fan, unfortunately for them uh, was on the wrong end of the outcome that day. But um, is there, I, I may be getting my Chargers games mixed up. You, you've got a much better memory, mm-hmm. uh, on this stuff than me. Was there some kind of big fourth and one stop by Ray Lewis in that game? Or was that another Chargers game? In that Chargers game. Oh, the fourth and two stop was in 2009 in okay. week, in week three, I think that was the one that made the Ravens three and O in San Diego. Maybe it was two and O, but, but anyways, early season, and Ray Lewis made a fourth and two stop on the on the last stand. The 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 big play from the 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 big moment of the Rice fourth and twenty nine that I think you're referring to is Bolden threw an unbelievable block that a lot of people would say was a block in the back, but he really hurried to make it a block in the side on Weddle that just knocked him completely out of the picture. So that was exciting. Uh, all right, well, let's move on. Number nineteen. Uh, go back to a game some people probably don't remember, which is in 2011. The Ravens trailed the Bills 24 to 10 just before the half. It's an October game, and 24 to 10 deficit. Any time during the Ravens' history has, has been a big deficit. Of course, uh, Buffalo came to town as not a very impressive team. Uh, often that has been the case, but uh, but the Ravens trailed 24 to 10, and the Ravens. It was right before the half. They scored 17 unanswered points in the span of a minute and two seconds to take a 27-24 lead. And that 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 bridged the halftime. So it was in the last 30 seconds they scored 10 points in the first half, including a touchdown and a fumble and a, and a field goal. But then in the second half, uh, they started off with the first play from scrimmage. And there might have been another fumble on the kickoff there because I believe that the Ravens actually kicked that ball off. 
And then uh, there was a fumble on the kickoff. The Bills, uh, the Bills gave it up, and they they had a flea flicker. And Flacco had just gotten the ball in his hands. And Don Crickey was announcing the game and says, and, and Flacco throws the ball in for the touchdown. It's like it was like they were ahead of a wrestling script or something. The announcer knows the entire script. He knows what's coming. He reads it out. But but in this case, it was just that same kind of thing. And and uh, a great play for that. That didn't really get the game completely won. The Ravens actually blew a lead late in that game of, of 10 points and had to win 37-34 in overtime. But that was a, it was a moment that I really remember. Yeah, and what a couple things stand out to me about that game, and you see this theme throughout Flacco's career, just sort of that that calmness, that coolness, that just very sober approach to um, two-minute situations, into-the-game situations. Just, you know, it almost seemed like he 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 raised his level of play in those situations. Uh, and, and you saw that as a consistent theme throughout his career. And then, of course, I remember uh, – the Ravens making uh, Lee Evans look like the second coming of Jerry Rice. Uh, <laughs> he seemed to uh, catch passes everywhere and catch touchdowns everywhere. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Uh, I know you mentioned in the article maybe that was something that led to their interest in Lee Evans, but yeah, he had, uh, that day he looked unstoppable. Yeah, he had four touchdown catches that year, if I recall, and three of them were in that game. And of course, the Ravens acquired him after that season for the uh, hmm. I have the wrong year on this because this game was in 2010 because the Ravens acquired him for 2011. Sorry, got the year wrong and initially on that. So the, the, the Evans was acquired for 2011 anyway, based on that game. Everybody had him predicted for, you know, 1400 yards. I want to say that everybody, there were a lot of people that you could see online. And this is why you can't be, you have to be very moderating about these kind of things. You pick up an older receiver, you're likely to get less. Evans the next year was thrown at 27 times during the regular season. Four completions, zero touchdowns, three interceptions. The passer rating throwing to him for Flacco was 0.0. To say those guys never got it connected would be pretty darn accurate. And they did have four catches in the postseason, including some catches on that big drive leading up to his big getting stripped by Sterling Moore in the end zone. But I think we'll remember Lee Evans, obviously, in this town, not quite as fondly as the Buffalo people will. Yeah, it's a very dubious sort of non-catch is is what I think most people remember Lee for. Yeah. Okay, we'll move on to number 18. Uh, in September of 2011, uh, the Ravens played there. forget if it was their second or third game of the year. Uh, in, in uh, It must have been their third game of the year in St. Louis. And in the first two games, Torrey Smith had been targeted one time. But in this third game, he really established his connection with Joe Flacco that lasted for several years uh, with TD receptions on the first three passes thrown to him. The first was for 74 yards, beat the cornerback. Then for 41 yards, again, beat the cornerback with, with, uh, by plenty. And then by 18 yards with a leaping grab to outrest the cornerback for the ball. Uh, in the end zone, the Ravens went on to, to destroy the Rams that day, 37 to seven. Flacco had his career high in yards that day, which was, uh, I believe, never eclipsed 389 yards uh, to go with three touchdowns uh, in that game. And I think, uh, like you mentioned, that previous game, Torrey only being targeted one time and even maybe going back to uh, preseason, uh, there was concern about drops with him. 
you know, mm-hmm. and, and and it seemed to be like a confidence thing. I think you heard some of the coaches and maybe some of the other players saying that, that, hey, he just needed to go out and do it in a game, right? He just needed to have that game to kind of prove to himself that, hey, I belong here. I can play at this level and talk about a way to prove to yourself. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that to to have your, your first three catches be touchdowns and a couple long touchdowns mixed in there. And um, that connection, you're right. Uh, this, this may be something we'll talk about later. I, going back, watching some of these games, uh, I found myself getting more angry about the fact that Torrey Smith was not a Raven for longer. Uh, obviously, there's extenuating circumstances, but uh, man, what a, what a connection those two guys it had. Was. It, was, it was a great connection in a lot of ways. At this point, layering on what you're saying here, um, one of the things that was a common criticism of Torrey Smith in that 2011 season was that his hands were too small. I kept seeing that all over the place, that his hand, he didn't have normal hand size for a wide receiver or whatever. I think we can say by the end of his career that Torrey Smith, the hands were not really an issue. I don't think that's not where I would put the issue. And what he did bring to the arrangement with Flacco was a guy who actually really stretched the defenses. And they never really had another one until Perriman, and then Perriman couldn't hold onto the ball. So didn't really matter as much. But Flacco had a tremendous degree of trust for Torrey Smith. And the, the Ravens' favorite play during that entire era, in fact, really spanning both ends of this, was to boot flow Joe out to the right naked. So they do a zone block play to the left, they, they naked boot to the right, and then Joe would have targets at three levels. And if they fooled that edge defender, which they did a lot in the early years, then Joe had a lot of time to make choices on that second or third level throw before he gave up and checked it down to the first level. And Tor- throwing the ball to Torrey Smith in that era created some unreal pass interference penalties. And, you know, Steeler fans say, oh, Joe Flacco just throws the ball up and tries to get a pass interference. Well, that those were by design. I mean, Torrey Smith was outrunning the defense, and they were doing anything they could do to stop him on these incredibly long plays. And, in fact, I think it was in 2012, Flacco had the three longest pass interference calls in the entire year, all the Torrey, and they were 50, 50, and 60 yards. I mean, a 60-yard pass interference call. That's a, that's a hell of a pass to start with, uh, and uh, it's really something. So anyway, that, that connection was something really special and something that, that the Ravens really haven't replicated since, certainly not in the same kind of a field-stretching player. No, some guys time fast, like when a track setting, and some guys run fast and play fast on the field, and Torrey was both time fast on the track and played fast in the game. Yeah, great point. Okay, we'll move on to, to another game in 2012, and you'll notice a lot of these top 21 are from that year, but a lot of people don't remember what a struggle the Ravens had in the last six weeks or so of that season when they had a losing streak, and they had lost three in a row. They had dropped to, let's see, what would their record have been there at the time? I think 10-4, and four, they were in danger of not winning the division, possibly only going as the wild card, and they hadn't even locked that up at that point. But they, the defending champion New York Giants came to Baltimore, and Flacco and the Ravens, their defense, the entire team, really dropped it all on them in a 33-14 to 14 win that, uh, that game. Joe had 25-36 of 36 for 309 in that game with two TDs, no interceptions. Um, he ran for another touchdown. And the Ravens finally got it done at home after they had lost at D.C. They had lost at Pittsburgh. I forget where the other loss was, but they had uh, they lost three games in a row prior to that. 
And I don't remember as much about that particular game. It was one I wanted to get back and watch. I didn't get a chance to, but that Giants um, defense, I imagine it wasn't necessarily the same that we saw mm-hmm. in the Super Bowl. But what do you, what do you remember about that? Because they had pretty uh, fearsome pass rush. Obviously, that's kind of what, what put them over the top in that game against the Patriots. Right. And, and that was a big concern about the 2012 Ravens because they had Michael Orr at left tackle for that entire regular season. And he was he was terrible. Um, he was just awful. And you never see this with a team that wins a division title. But going into the playoffs, they moved Orr to right tackle and put in the great Bryant McKinney as, mm-hmm. if, as if that was a huge improvement uh, in at left tackle because they just they couldn't deal with the pass block anymore. But that, that 2012 teams, they, they, they got a win out of McKinney. They got a neutral out of Orr, moving him to right tackle. And they got a, uh, a a big, big improvement moving Kalechi Assembly from right tackle into left guard for the playoff run. That was really the the thing that put him over the top. Kalechi Assembly, the in, in just the, his first game there against the uh, Colts, had one of the really fine uh, guard games you'll see in terms of making a huge number of power blocks. All right, we'll move on here. Okay, now a game that seems particularly appropriate for this particular time in Baltimore on uh, December of 2013. And we're getting into an era where there aren't a lot of Flacco highlight games, but the really weird blizzard game against the Vikings um, in, uh, in 2013. So to, to set a little bit of this back, the Ravens um, went ahead in that game on a pass from Flacco to Pitta on fourth and two, fourth and goal from the two uh, with 209 to go. So they went ahead in that game. They also went for a two-point conversion. Flacco was under pressure, threw the ball up in the end zone, a ball that never should have been anywhere near caught. But because of the snow, it was very hard to cover receivers at this point in the game. And Torrey Smith was able to float under the football and make the catch for a two-point conversion that put the Ravens up three. Then things didn't stay that way for all that long. The Vikings had a two-play drive to score. I think it was like a 41-yard play and a 32-yard play. And they were in the end zone again and back up by four. Jacoby Jones took the following kickoff. They did everything they could to put that kickoff right on the on the sideline and short, kind of like a pooching it as opposed to trying to kick it through the end zone or giving giving him some decision on, on how he was going to return it. But even pinned to that, uh, that left sideline, he ran it all the way back for an 84-yard touchdown, put the Ravens back up three. And, uh, you know, we thought – that's got to be the end of it at that point. But uh, it, then a couple of plays later, Corderell Patterson caught a screen pass and went the distance with it, put the Vikings back up by three. And the Ravens had a, had the got the ball back with, I think it was 45 seconds to go. Or maybe it was a 45-second drive and they had 49 seconds to go. I'm sure, sure that doesn't really matter that much to folks. But they drove up the field meth- fairly methodically, including a long uh, pass interference play to Pitta, uh, uh, passed a midfield, I believe it was also to Pitta to get in position, and then a nine-yard touchdown pass to Marlon Brown in the back of the end zone. And what was neat about it, I remember from that game, is that there were tracks made by Marlon Brown that they kept highlighting on the video boards as being obviously he was in. But but just a, a fantastic drive. They finally put the game away with four seconds remaining uh, in, in absolutely the wildest finish I've ever seen. Now that game, I do remember. And you're right. I mean, wild is a perfect way to describe it. I, I don't remember since then or maybe before or since seeing that number of touchdowns scored in that short of span of time. It's so many big explosive plays. But I think the other thing you saw in that game was 
another one of these themes that I think you can see throughout these games and in and, and Flacco's time here was his ability to play well in bad weather. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was snow, whether it was rain, uh, Obviously, having the kind of arm that he had obviously gives you an advantage there. But he was one of those when when people talk about, you know, being built to play in the AFC North and the weather there late in the season. He's like the prototypical guy, right, to be able to play and and and, and really have good games in that weather, um, that kind of weather. And the other thing I remember, you mentioned Patterson. He looked like the second coming of Walter Payton. I mean, they yeah. just, this guy was running up and down the field and guys were just bouncing off of him. And I was like, man, who is this guy? And then, you know, he disappears, you know, yeah. basically off the NFL radar for years, never hear from him. And then, of course, Bill Belichick says, I know what to do with this guy. I know yeah. how to use this guy, right? And now he, he pops up again and you see him making plays in the Super Bowl. So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I, I could not believe that he didn't end up being anything after that game. Just watching him, I thought the same thing. But I probably would have said the same thing about Lee Evans. Anyway, go, going back to your other point, though, about the weather. Terrific point. I mean, Flacco, in addition to the rain and the snow where he always played well, he played well in cold in the playoffs. He, he's an unbelievable high-wind quarterback. You know, and that's what comes with, you know, being able to basically throw a snowball through a blast furnace is you 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 can you have that kind of arm. You can you can get you can make do with that and and even good quarterbacks like Tom Brady we saw him come to Baltimore in 2007 and almost lose a football game when high wind was a factor and you know it's it uh, Flacco was one of those guys that it was going to be a bigger problem for the other guy whatever weather there was yeah you hear that you hear quarterbacks talk about that despite whatever the weather condition is snow rain mm-hmm. cold high wind is the thing that affects them the most, right? They yeah. just say, I can, I can kind of handle all that other stuff and play through it, but when really affects guys. So Joe had the arm that was like impervious to the wind. <laughs> you know, you'd have to have some kind of really strong, crazy gusts uh, to really see his ball get, you know, like significantly affected by the wind. Um, so yeah, he just, he just had an advantage going into those games. Yeah. All right. Well, we get to another, uh, another game with significant weather implications or significant weather factor. Uh, just last year, uh, the opener against the Bills, the Ravens won at 47 to three. It was a complete rain game. I, I, Ravens had three rain games this last year after really not having much rain all of Flacco's career. And in fact, all of the franchise history, they probably only had four or five games prior to this year that had any significant amount of rain during the game. Uh, you know, I think think about the Pittsburgh game in 1996 that they won 31-17. That was a rain game. But basically, they did very well in avoiding rain. And that game, they, they Flacco completed 25 of 34 like there wasn't a problem at all. And the Bills quarterbacks were sharing duty and getting sacked a bunch, of course, as they went down 47 to 3. Flacco had a passer rating 121, three t- touchdowns and no interceptions. Anyway, uh, it was one of Joe's last great games, certainly in the opener last year. Yeah, uh, I definitely had on my, my purple glasses. I was two-fisting the Kool-Aid at that point because uh, Flacco came in the healthy offseason, you know, for the first time in a couple of years. You had all the new wide receivers who came in, and then they go out and just decimate the Bills. And in my mind, I'm thinking, print the shirts, right? Let's start printing the shirts because we're going all the way. <laughs> and obviously the season had some some turns and some twists to it, but what a game that was. I mean, to, for the season to start that way, particularly in those conditions, and I mean – you don't often in the NFL see teams drop, you know, damn near a 50 burger on, on opponents. It does not happen often. So uh, I was all in at that point. It's just, just a, a great, great start to the season and uh, another great performance by Joe. 
Yeah, it's, it's holding them to three points. Other was the other side of this. The Ravens only won two games by more. They twice won forty-eight to three, but uh, quite a, a margin of victory there. There's one other game we're going to get to now, and it was just three weeks later, the game at Pittsburgh in Week Four, where the Ravens really took that game over in the second half. The Pittsburgh uh, had a comeback in the first half to tie it at fourteen. And the Ravens then had four unanswered field goals. The defense clamped down. Flacco kept them driving throughout that second half. Uh, he had 363 yards and two touchdowns in that 26-14 Sunday night win at Pittsburgh. And that was, in fact, the last time Joe Flacco would ever play in prime time for the Ravens. So uh, exciting game and, uh, and certainly a big one for the 2018 Ravens. Yeah, and, and that's significance, you know, it being his last primetime game. None of us knew at the time, uh, obviously, but uh, when you when you phrase it that way now, it really, you know, adds some significance to that game. And I remember that being kind of just one of those classic Baltimore-Pittsburgh games, kind of a slugfest, uh, really evenly matched. Uh, Ravens, I, if I, I think I got this right, kind of struggled to run the ball in that game a little bit. Uh, and, and so, you know, they they had to kind of put it on Joe a little bit more. Um and, and, you know, he answered the bell. I mean, I think that's – we talk. I keep talking about these consistent themes throughout his career. I mean, I think in situations versus, you know, rivalry opponents or big games, when he needed to kind of shoulder a little bit more of the load, you know, more often than not, he did. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, they, they really – a lot of complaints were made about the amount of passing uh, necessary in that game. The Ravens had 30 rushes for 96 yards in that game. But they did throw the ball 42 times, which if you go back to the 1970s Colts or, or, or teams of the early area, throwing 42 passes, that's just completely unacceptable. Uh, it, would, it would have been way too many. At one point, and it might have been all, uh, through Colt history in Baltimore, the most completions a quarterback ever had for the Baltimore Colts was, I believe, 23 in a game. Mm. So I'd have to go back and, and, and make sure I'm right on that. But I think that's uh, that's correct. So anyway, let's go. Let's move on here. Um, we're going to go back now to Flacco's rookie season because in November of 2008, in fact, a little bit earlier in the season than that, um, the Ravens were in real trouble. Through five weeks, they were two and three. Now they had lost to a couple of very good teams consecutively. They lost to the Titans in Baltimore, 13 to 10, and they lost to the Indianapolis Colts in a game that wasn't close. I think it was 31 to three in Indianapolis, one of the really bad road games we've ever been to. Uh, and then they, they they went down to Miami after the bye, and they kicked the crap out of the Dolphins 27-13 to get their season even. So they went into Cleveland at 3-3, three and three, and they were trailing 27-13 late in the third quarter in Cleveland. And Joe led the Ravens to 24 unanswered points in the final 17 minutes. Now, it wasn't all Joe because Suggs had the game-sealing touchdown on an interception of a screen pass. Uh, but Joe did have the game-tying 28-yard touchdown to Derek Mason and that was Flacco's first really great comeback with the Ravens. That Derek Mason connection. I I, I didn't get a chance to rewatch that whole game, but I, I wanted to pick and choose the touchdowns. And, I, and so I did get a chance to see that one to Derek Mason. And that was also maybe the beginning of that first sort of connection with a receiver. I mean, we saw that throughout the rest of his career. He kind of would develop that chemistry and that connection with one guy. And uh, Derek Mason might have been the first of those guys. And then, you know, we've seen a list of guys since then, whether it's Anquan Bolden, whether it's Steve Smith. Uh, obviously, we talked about the long ball connection with Torrey. But, man, Derek Mason, like clockwork, those deep out passes 
uh, deep out patterns right along the sideline. I mean, you can count on it. You know, just 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 set your watch to it. But you get, you have to have two choices to make that work. And and the other thing that I really remember about Mason was how how connected he and Joe were on the ten yard back shoulder throw. But that connection is what's going to make Mason effective deep as well. We saw that in other games as well that he was able to get down that right sideline mostly mostly the right sideline and he knew exactly where the football was coming if, the, if it was coming to the back shoulder he turned at exactly the right time the ball was halfway there and and that defender didn't really have a chance but yeah you're right i mean that connection to mason was was another good one during his career all right so let's move on I, I, september 2012 and this is a game that some people kind of can forget about that 2012 season it was a great comeback to win 31 30 against the patriots and, you know, setting the stage for that one again, Torrey Smith had lost his brother to a motorcycle accident. I think it might have been the previous day or it was at least that week. And there was some question as to whether or not he was going to play on Sunday night. But play he did. He was outstanding, including two touchdown passes caught and 127 yards receiving. Uh, the Ravens were down nine points with 401 to go in that game and came back to win. Uh, ended up winning on a disputed Justin Tucker field goal that was above the uprights and if Baltimore Colt fans have some reminiscence of 19 a 1960s loss to the Packers uh in the playoffs that was that was similar where the where the goalposts ended up getting extended the following season but the Patriots of course complained about it but that time the Patriots didn't get the call and uh and the Ravens won Joe was 28 of 39 in that game he had 382 yards one of his highest totals ever and, and three touchdowns so uh, another great one there yeah, I, re- I remember that game because of the Torrey Smith situation and just, you know, how much of an emotional thing that was for him uh, to still go out and play and play well in that game. And then I also remember the disputed field goal. And I remember Belichick out on the field at the end of the game with one of the officials, tried, you know, sort of pointing, like motioning at it, trying to argue, you know, hey, this thing wasn't good, you know, you can't call it good. Um, but it's just another case, too, of, uh, of Joe uh, bringing the team uh, back, uh, being down late. Uh, you know, not a lot of time left and, and having to close a gap and 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 pull the game out. And again, I just think when you saw him go into those situations, uh, there was never any rush. There was never sense any sense of panic to the point where sometimes I think people complained about it almost sometimes. Right. In two minute situation, he needs to hurry up. He needs to move faster. He doesn't look like he's moving. But I think that kind of calmness and soberness more often than not is going to serve you well than a guy who's like real frenetic and like real sort of herky jerky in those situations. Yeah, we certainly have seen examples and we'll get to at least one more during this thing of, of, uh, of taking your time actually ended up uh, being very helpful. But uh, I, I agree. Flacco's a very good four down drive quarterback. And, and there are some quarterbacks who obviously the, the worse your completion percentage, the worse you're going to be as a four down quarterback, higher completion percentage quarterbacks even if their short passes are going to tend to be better with four downs. And the guy, obviously, who I'm thinking of it was just a terrible four-down quarterback, about the worst you can ever think of was Kyle Bowler. Uh, he's a spaz. He's got a low low completion rate. Uh, and, and he also seemed to get more upset and more panicky when he's working with four downs. And you'd think some if you wanted to maybe at least make the guy think a little bit less and stop, you know, talking himself out of things, you know, Give him less time to work with, but that didn't seem to work for Bowler either. He's just he had a he had a lot of problems in in terms of playing the game of football and uh, uh, great arm though, like right? Throw yeah. the ball eighty yards from his knees, right? Yeah, that <laughs> that really sold me during the draft. I got to say, I was so excited about that that the, that combine throw that he made, or if combine or pro day, whatever it was, 
where he threw the ball through the uprights from his knees. But uh, boy, he he had a, a fifty cent head there, and uh, and that really held him back. Well, that, that's a good trick to hide your feet. Yeah, no, no one will notice that you trip his, over yourself all the time. His, his footwork wasn't great. He highlighted his strength. Good for him. <laughs> all right, so now we'll go on to number ten here. This is a game a lot of people complained about on Twitter that I didn't have it ranked high enough, but the 2011 season opener. The Ravens are still licking their wounds from several years of basically getting beat by the Steelers. So they didn't lose every single game. They won a game in 2010, but they lost in 2008 to the Steelers. They lost in 2009 to the Steelers. In 2010, they lost a playoff game to the Steelers after being up 21-7. to So coming into that game, obviously, there was a lot of angst about, about having a season opener against the Steelers and just how much that meant and uh, and what the deal was. Well, the Ravens won 35 to seven. It began with a Flacco to Bolden uh, touchdown on the third play of the season after Rice had made a long run to, to, to kind of get that drive set up. And the Ravens never looked in the back in that game. They had a seven to nothing turnover margin and they won 35 to seven. Now Flacco was fantastic. 17 of 29 for 224 with three touchdowns. So his, his stats were great. The Ravens' big four defenders that day were responsible for almost all of those seven turnovers, and they had a hand in them, whether they tipped the ball or they made the interception or whatever it was. And Lewis, Reed, Suggs, and Nada uh, had their best combined game in their time together. Uh, and, and I always say, if that's the game, if you want to uh, explain what those Raven defenders meant, what those great Ravens players meant, go back and, and show your kids this game someday, and they just – they dominated the game like you'll never see four defensive players do. Now, and just to have four de- defensive players of that caliber on the same team, uh, I mean, I, obviously as Ravens fans, we saw it for a number of years and right. probably are a little spoiled by it, but um, it's just amazing when you think about it, uh, especially now. You know, obviously Ray went into the Hall of Fame and now Ed's going into the Hall of Fame. And Such I don't care what, what he, I, yeah, I don't care what anybody says. So it should be in the Hall of Fame too. But you think about just the quality of defenders that they that they had in in, in that game that you you talked about the the kind of show that they really put on. And then another guy in that ride where you mentioned uh, Anquan catching that touchdown pass. If there was a guy who was built to play in that rivalry. You know, aside from the guys who were already a part of that, who had to come from outside in, in, into that rivalry, he was a guy. I mean, he he just everything about him was uh, and Steve Smith, too. I mean, maybe you put those guys right there. One A, one B is being, you know, built to play in that rivalry. And I know you go to quite a few road games. I don't know if you were at that one or not, but I got to imagine that that uh, that stadium was uh, maybe the quietest. It oh, had no, been this was long this, time. Was, this game was actually at home. But OK, OK. It was the home game. Yeah. OK, OK. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. Very exciting. I got it. We're going to get to the road that, that was good. Year. Okay. All right. Yeah, let's go. Let's go there. And it's actually the next one. Number nine was in November of that same year, 11-6 of 11. Uh, the Ravens trailed that game um, with 224 to go. And I believe they trailed by four. Yeah, 20 to 16 was the score. And they got backed up on the punt to their own eight yard line. And they had Flacco had to engineer a drive up the field. This is his fourth season. He's he's a veteran quarterback at this point. He's had any you know obviously a number of of playoff successes already to that point, and and some good two minute success already. But this was you know one of his finest hours to in Pittsburgh engineer a ninety two yard game winning drive in two twenty four, 
And it was capped with a touchdown to Torrey Smith with eight seconds remaining. Now, a lot of people do remember that catch uh, where uh, Torrey Smith actually goes diving to the turf in the right side of the end zone. And they also kind of remember earlier that Torrey Smith just could not quite call in a ball that hit him on the fingertips in the left side, on the left side of the end zone. That was just a few seconds earlier. But much to Flacco's credit, and, and uh, you know, this was Smith's rookie season. He didn't try and go to another receiver. He didn't try and 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 uh, have it be somebody else. He went back to Torrey, but it was about three plays later, and uh, and was right on the money to him with eight seconds to go for the winning score. And I do remember that catch and sort of you know diving sort of full extension type mm-hmm. type of catch. And like you said, uh, you know there was kind of even though it was Torrey's rookie season, I think there was already the perception forming that he's this deep ball, long shot kind of guy. You know, maybe not necessarily the guy that you're going to go to with the game on the line, but he showed, you know, at least on that play, and I think some other plays in his career too, that uh, he could be that guy. You know, he could be the guy that you could go to in a clutch situation who needed to come up uh, with that catch and make it. Obviously, you know, we're not we're not putting him in the category of Anquan Boldens or, or those kind of guys, but uh, I remember that game. And I got to be honest, I was thinking, well. You know, I don't know. I don't know about this one. I don't know if they're going to pull this one out. And then, you know, Torrey makes that play and just shuts me right up. So I uh, was glad, glad that it happened that way. You mentioned Anquan, and Anquan had a big catch on that drive. And, and it really showed, like, what you could depend on Anquan for in a way. They cleared out his own in the middle of the field, and they left him basically one-on-one against Gay in the in the in between the hashes. And Flacco threw a ball that, you know, was right on the money to Bolden, so he caught it. But more than that, Bolden had already sealed off Gay from any possibility of getting to the ball with his body. He was very good with that. And even the the defender that got his hand in there, the thing that was in danger was that defender's arm in terms of being broken or being, you know, snapped off because Bolden was like a vice in terms of his grip on the football. Very, very good at not having a, a, a pass defense even when he when he had somebody right on him. Absolutely. I was reminding me of like the Terminator movies. Like this guy just there's nothing <laughs> you couldn't stop him, right? There's nothing you could do. You could hit him hard, you know, on a play. He'd bounce right back up. He'd come back the next play and make a play, you know, with guys draped all over him or a catch that there's no way that he should make some of these catches that he made. He can't see mm-hmm. the ball. There's people, you know, trying to pry his grip from the ball. It's just it was unbelievable. Right. Okay. We want the next one to continue with some Steeler magic here. This one in 2010, they uh, they won a game at Pittsburgh uh, with another drive, 40 yards in four plays. Now, this was set up by an interesting set of plays around the goal line where the Steelers decided with Charlie Batch at quarterback that they were going to be very conservative, run the ball three times, which which might have worked, except they had two false starts mixed into their plays. And the Ravens ended up getting the ball back with, Let's see, a minute and eight to go, trailing 14 to 10 at the 40-yard line. And Flacco drove them 40 yards in four plays in 36 seconds. So it was, it was two completes to Bolden, nine and three yards, got a first down. Complete to Hushmanzada for 10. And then and then the completion that I think a lot of people will remember, which was an over-the-top on the between the hashes and the right numbers to Hushmanzada in the back of the end zone. Hushmanzada did extra toe-tapping to get down. And uh, and it gave a big mock salute to the Steelers fans. And it's a it's a great moment for me in terms of uh, uh, of that game. 
I remember the the Hushmanzada year. <laughs> he was a guy who came over from Cincinnati, and uh, I think I was wondering what what's left. You know, what was he got mm-hmm. left? I mean, he wasn't like an old old guy, but sometimes you wonder, you know, what's left in the tank there. And I think they got some some solid play from him. And then obviously the 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 play that you just mentioned in that game uh, sort of backed it up. But um, I love those games. Anytime that they can go there and shut that crowd up, <laughs> take those towels tug them in your pants, throw them yeah. down on the ground, whatever. Cry into them. Just, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I hate those towels. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. Let's 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 keep moving. Yeah. Does anybody feel, by the way, just talking about your, your towel point here for a moment, that the Ravens should find something other than a towel to work with? I mean, you need some other, some other object other than a towel. A towel is taken, even though it's a convenient, easy to produce, probably easy to mass produce in purple kind of thing. We just want something that's our own. I mean, I, I don't want a purple towel. I can tell you that. Well, we, we've been down this path in this discussion. I don't think there's another option because of NFL rules with noisemakers and stuff. And uh-huh. you're not going to give them like laser fingers or uh, something. Yeah. Any, anything that you wave <laughs> around is going gonna, is gonna to look like a towel. So they could say, make- okay, we give shirts. It still looks it- the same. If, if you've ever been at the stadium when the Orioles have a giveaway, and Josh, I can look and see in your office, yeah. and you have. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you know what my favorite giveaway is? The playoff game when they gave away towels. No, but there's nothing else that gets, this, that gets the crowd moving. No, okay. Didn't the I, Ravens used to have – it might not have been a giveaway. Maybe people were buying it themselves. I don't know, but – were there people that had like these plastic chains that were supposed to be like the move the chains, move the chains, like the first down chains? See, that's not a bad idea. Right there is a, is a is a good thing you can whip around. It can and, be turned into a weapon too easily. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you can strangle someone, but okay. <laughs> but you can strangle someone with a towel too. Hey, whatever. I, I, I just I, if you've been to them, the point I wanted to make about the about the giveaway nights, Josh, is that when they used to give those away in the '80s, one of the things they used to do is tell the entire crowd to wave their souvenir up so they could get a camera shot of it. And it depended on the item, but usually if it was wrapped in plastic or whatever it was, you get a very cool effect of it, of it creating this sparkly lighting effect all over the stadium. And you can do that with other items. It doesn't have to just be a towel. Well, yeah, the the Orioles do that on hat night and they'll say, Hey, wave your hat in the air to thank Dap for sponsoring these hats. But that's a two second thing. That's not a, uh, while you're singing Seven Nation Army, you're swinging around your hat. So, All right. I don't. I don't think no, I know. I know product you, works. I know it's you for your birthday now, Josh. I know. I know exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. I think it's Some the it's the atmosphere that I like more than the towel. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, we will we'll end that digression here. We we'll go back to a game that it does gets a little bit of short shrift, I believe, in the Ravens' incredible 2012 run. Um, they beat the Colts in that first playoff game, 24 to nine. It is obviously a dominating one side performance. We remember that game as Ray's last dance. In a lot of ways, Ray was one of the worst players on the field that day, and I, I you know, I'm not trying to take down Ray Lewis, but he dropped interception that's right in his hands. He looked slow. He had a lot of trouble tackling, although the Colts ran right at him most of the day, and that allowed him to accumulate a fair number of tackles. I think he might have had 13 and a, and a record number in that playoffs, if I recall correctly. But he really had a lot of problems coming back from that injury and not being the player he was. 
But it was still great to see him out there in victory formation at the on, on the back end. And uh, Flacco was the, was the guy who really won the game for the Ravens with 282 yards on 23 passes, uh, two touchdowns, zero interceptions. Uh, but it was great uh, to get the playoff monkey versus the Colts off their backs, even though they hadn't, hadn't got the Manning monkey off their back yet. And I think Ray had two dances in that game, right? There was the, the pregame dance, and then there was at the end when he was in the victory yeah. formation <laughs> dance at that point. Um, the thing I wanted to ask you about that was, so I think this happened before that game, maybe two games before. When did they let go of Cam Cameron? Wasn't that the thing they made the move to Caldwell? Yeah, it was in mid at midseason, and I couldn't okay. tell you the exact okay. the exact date, but it was it was you know seven eight games into the season, and then Cameron got another job in the South somewhere as the might have been LSU or one of the other places in terms of an offensive coordinator, and and Bishotti bought him a ring at the end of that at, when they won the Super Bowl that year. So Steve B has always been a very generous owner, a very very. I think a very wise owner in terms of, of of making sure that people are heard properly and that the organizational structure is what it needs to be to to, to be self-supporting as opposed to you know you create something that fails. But but I thought the way his treatment of Cameron was very good and and, and Cameron and Flacco had some good times together and then all of a sudden that that relationship seemed to get very acrimonious. It did. I mean, I, and that that's why I was trying to gauge when that happened because it was like. Like you said, early on in his career, it seemed like there was a good relationship there and a pretty good connection. And then something just happened. Uh, and maybe it wasn't that season. Maybe it had been building up for a while. But um, I think, you know, there was a perception that, well, what's going to happen now? You know, what, what's the offense, you know, going to look like? Yeah, obviously, you're not going to change a ton when you're in the middle of the season and you're switching coordinators. But is that really going to make a difference? Who knows whether it did or not? But, I mean, who can argue with the results? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right, so let's go back to one more Steelers game here, and this was a fairly recent one. On the third day of 2015, 1-3 of 15, the Ravens went to Pittsburgh, and they did something that no Baltimore team in any sport had really had any success against the Steelers, uh, sorry, against Pittsburgh in a playoff game since I started being a fan. And I, I go back a long way. The 1971 World Series was one of my first uh, uh, baseball games I went to. I went to my first games in 1971. And I went to Game 7 of the World Series that year, and they lost it to the, to the, the Pirates on their home turf, of course, which was terrible. And they lost again in Game 7 to the Pirates in 1979. They lost a couple of playoff games to the Steelers in 75 and 76. It ended a couple of Burt Jones seasons badly. Um, and then, of course, they lost a couple of playoff games in 2001 and 2008 and 2010 again, all to the Steelers. So they had a lot of lack of success. Now, we don't even have to get into what the what the Penguins did to the Caps during that during that time. But that relationship was obviously very one sided as well. But finally, and on that uh, on that day in 2015, the end of the 2014 season, uh, the Ravens won a game. They went to Pittsburgh and they throttled them pretty badly. Uh, Thirty to. 17 was the final. Uh, I think that's really shows us as being a little closer than it was. Uh, Roethlisberger left the game with a concussion late, came back obviously in violation of the concussion protocol, and immediately <laughs> threw an end zone, end zone interception to uh, to Stewart, who uh, earned his entire salary on that day, by the way, against the Steelers. So, uh, hell of a football game. We went to that one. Very exciting to be there and 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 see the stadium get quiet, as uh, as Michael would say. 
Yeah, I got, wouldn't wouldn't be Ben without some drama. You know, there's gotta there's gotta be oh, you know, an injury. He's not gonna play, and he's back in the game. And it's just uh, it just seems to be how he rolls. It's interesting to hear uh, sort of the history of of your fandom and how far back you go with these teams because. I I don't have that same history other than the with the Ravens, which is kind of weird because I'm I'm from Ohio, come from a family of Browns fans, and mm-hmm. when the Browns left, uh, a lot of my family sort of just threw their hands up and just you know f football kind of thing. Uh-huh, <laughs> sure. I sort of followed the team and said, well look, and, and I was living in Maryland at that time, and I said, well look, it, it's basically the Browns, it's the former Browns essentially. You know, a lot of those a lot of those guys were still on the team at that point. Uh, but and that's sort of how I got there. But people always ask me, well, how come you didn't revert back? You know, when the Browns, you know, were, were given a franchise back. Well, why didn't you go? I, said, well, I just didn't have any connection to those guys. You know, the, the connection that I had was from the guys that came from Cleveland, the, the ones that were still part of that team. And it sort of just took off from there. Uh, so it's always interesting to me to hear the story of, of people and how they, you know, sort of became fans and, and the history of their their fandom. I know that's not about Flacco, but. <laughs> that's, that's a very re- worthwhile digression there. So it's, it's an interesting point. So you're, you're a displaced Cleveland or a displaced Ohio person who was in Baltimore at the time of the move? Yes. Okay. So that had to be kind of tough on you in terms of having to make the decision of whether or not you were going to be a Ravens fan at that point. But you're you're saying it was okay. No, it really wasn't hard for me at all because I was like, look, uh, this is basically a lot of the guys who were on that team. And uh, I'm here and I'm like, I'm going to get a chance to actually go see games, which Mm -hmm. I almost never got to go see Cleveland games unless I was back you know, home for something. So it really wasn't that hard for me. Plus, I was younger. You know, when you're younger, you know, you just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Um, But. Uh, no, it really wasn't that hard back then. Yeah, it hurt, it hurt to lose football here in Baltimore. It was great to get it back. One of the things I wish they'd done is that they they left the records for the Ravens. And it's fairly obvious that the Ursays didn't really give a rat's ass about the Colts' name uh, because they, there was talk about them selling the name back to Baltimore for $25 million. I mean, it's just it, it, it's ridiculous. So if you don't care about the name, Leave us the records as well. I mean, we want we want the retired numbers. We want the we want the uh, uh, you know the record book that goes with it. I, so having a, a franchise which is distinctly Ravens, and particularly with the success they've had, obviously in the in the twenty three years here, uh, has been really special. But you know, th- those old Baltimore Colts meant a lot to to the people here as well, and and we deserve, uh, frankly, to retain those memories as ours, and not have them on a wall somewhere in freaking Indianapolis. Yeah, that was just a raw deal. I agree with you on that. I mean, I not obviously wasn't a part of that when that happened, but that that's just not the right way to to handle that situation. All right, well, let's move on. Number five here, uh, October two thousand and fourteen. Uh, Joe Flacco and the Ravens went down to Tampa Bay for a game, and uh, there there were some cool things about this game. It was C.J. Mosley's first game as the defensive signal caller, so the first game that he had the green dot on the back of his helmet, and. Flacco had five touchdown passes in the first 17 minutes. The Ravens piled up a 38 to nothing halftime lead. It could have been 41 to nothing. They, it almost looked like they were trying to set Justin Tucker up by not having a gain on the play to have exactly a 64-yard field goal to set the NFL record. And that came at halftime. He missed it. But, uh, but it was a good opportunity to, to, to get him that shot in a, at a time in the game where it didn't really matter that much. And uh, and Harbaugh even said so after the game. Yeah, I, I might not have kicked that field goal, except it was a chance to get Justin Tucker the NFL record. And I, and I really wondered, you know, what about that play call right before that? Did that really 
uh, was that really a setup play for that? Because normally you'd pass the ball and you try and get 10 or 15 yards and pick up three more points, but they didn't. They ran the ball right in the line and got, you know, set up this uh, long field goal. But anyway, Flacco in that game, getting back to him, five touchdowns. It was actually 16-03 that he did it. A uh, bunch of different receivers involved, including Torrey Smith um, in this game. And uh, it uh, it was a very special big win, 48-17. to um, in, in some ways, I don't have that many memories of this game other than the Tampa offense being completely impotent in it. But, uh, you know, certainly a, a great one for Flacco. This is one of the games that I did actually get a chance to rewatch. And this one might have been, I mean, you heard people use this phrase a lot. I think they even, I've seen it on some t-shirts. This might've been the most wacko of the wacko for Flacco games uh, that he probably had in his career, it, just in terms of the start. I mean, maybe you could look at the overall numbers in some other games and, and make a case, but just in terms of the start, it looked like, uh, and again, I, I just rewatched this in the last couple of days. It looked like uh, practice. It looked like a seven-on-seven drill, the way they were yeah. just throwing touchdowns against the Tampa Bay. But the, the guy, the defender, I can't remember the corner's name, who was sort of lined up across from Torrey Smith, it's like he was trying to stay 10 yards away from him. I mean, it was that bad. Like, it was almost intentional uh, that he was playing that far off of him. And so it's just touchdown to Torrey, touchdown to Torrey, touchdown to Campanero, touchdown to Steve Smith, touchdown to Kamar. <laughs> you know, they're just chugging this thing up and down the field. And I'm like, wow. And even I didn't remember that. I mean, I looked at the numbers and obviously that kind of told the story, but until I, I went back and looked at it, I'm like, this was like, uh, it's hard. It's, I can't really think of any other way to describe it. It didn't look like a practice defense. Right. I, I, this seven on seven is a really good one because one of the things that Flacco was able to consistently do in that game was find the man coverage. And you're right. I mean, there was some there was some loose coverage that wouldn't necessarily explain all the touchdowns. But I think a guy you might have been talking about is Karan Butler in the game. Does that sound right? Or was that, it? Yeah. Or is it Werner? Uh, both of them. I think there there were okay. multiple guys that got torched. But I think that I think Butler was a guy that got the first two. Okay. So anyway, the, Tory, the first two were to Tory for 15 and nine yards. So that that uh, that would kind of make sense. But anyway, he, he seemed to find that man coverage just down after down after down. And obviously, the, the Tory was one player who was getting separation um, in that game. But anyway, a, exciting game, and uh, uh, probably that's as much as we need to say about it. Uh, we'll move on to number four, um, and this is one of the real all-time greats from early in Flacco's career. They went into Tennessee for the second game. Now, that first game probably deserves some special attention, too, because Flacco played very well, although a lot of it was in-game management and not really as a passer. But they went down in that first playoff game, beat the Dolphins, and throttled them pretty badly 26-9 to in a game that was really dominated by Ed Reed. Ed Reed ran back that first touchdown, wove through the entire defense, basically the entire defense, exactly knew what they had to do to set up half a field for Ed Reed and, and gave him a, a, a 64 yard touchdown that I, I don't know why we don't see it more in terms of all time Ravens highlights. Still, I, I predicted at the time we'd be seeing it for 40 years. Then the next week though, they, they, uh, after a 26 to nine win at Miami, they went to Tennessee to face the number one Titans. And the game was again, played in slop. Some more of the bad weather kind of thing. Now that the, the kind of, rain they had was the kind of rain that doesn't normally affect a quarterback too much. It was kind of a, like a light continual sprinkle, which can make it difficult for the defensive backs to pivot. Uh, you know, the, the, the wide receivers have a big advantage getting free in that game. And Kerry Collins definitely took advantage of that in the game to basically dominate most of the time of possession. But Flacco had three huge passes in the game. 
He had a 50-yard bomb to Mason. Sorry, a 48-yard bomb to Mason. End of the first quarter, immediately after the Titans had gone up 7-0 to get the game tied. Then in the third quarter, the game was still tied at 7, and he threw a 37-yard pass to Mason down the left sideline that set up the go-ahead. I'm sorry, that was to Clayton down the left sideline that set up the go-ahead field goal early in the fourth quarter. And then the big one was on third and two after the clock had wound down. And uh, as Dan Deardorff would have said, there was probably about a nanosecond until they were going to call delay of game. Uh, He completed a 23-yard pass to Todd Heap uh, on the game-winning drive that that, uh, extended that drive and, uh, and got him close. But anyway, that was Flacco's first great playoff game-winning drive in there to, to win that game against the Titans 13 to 10. And I think for me, I don't, I don't remember that game as well. I think you did a great job recapping, especially those, those big plays at the end, again, sort of uh, Flacco just starting to establish that, you know, playoff legacy uh, in terms of, in terms of winning big playoff games. But I think sometimes we, some of us, at least me, I'm certainly guilty of it, sort of forget how much of a rivalry that was with the Titans. I mean, mm-hmm. those games used to be some real slugfests. Uh, and, and maybe even a little bit before Flacco uh, uh, got there too. But um, everybody thinks about Pittsburgh and, and you know, sort of the, the, the AFC North rivalries, the current AFC North rivalries. But sometimes you forget about some of those those battles with the Titans. Yeah, when the AFC Central was together, yeah. I think a lot of people were very happy that Jacksonville and Tennessee were leaving the division in Pittsburgh, who wasn't all that good at the time was staying in the division come the 2002 season. It's actually announced after the 2000 season when Tennessee and Jacksonville were still thought to be good and having them leave the division was, yeah, that's great news. (laughs) And then, yeah, look look, look how that's turned out for us, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's really, when you, when you think about Peyton Manning's legacy was basically built on those two teams moving into his division. So, uh, and then getting the, the expansion team in this division didn't hurt at all either. But uh, but uh, that was a uh, that was quite a thing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, those games were two very physical teams. In in some ways, more physical than the Steelers and Ravens games were. Although those were you know hellaciously physical games. But those games with the Titans, their their defensive line in particular, mammoth, unforgiving defensive linemen who who caused a lot of pain and and really slowed down the Ravens' run game consistently. Uh, entirely during that era, but uh, but for for quite a good while, the Ravens had the upper hand in that rivalry, punctuated by that 2003 playoff loss. They had the they had the bookend wins in the 2000 playoffs and in the 2008 playoffs that were uh, actually very very similar football games. Great great games. All right, so move ahead to number three, um, and and this I think is a game where we may forget just how historic it was in some sense, but the third playoff game, the AFC Championship game at New England, the Ravens trailed 13-7 to at the half. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick at that time were 68-0 and in games that they led at the half at home. So anyway, they've never been beaten, obviously. And they had played a fairly conservative offensive style through that first half. And, and later on, you see mic'd up versions of that game. And you see Harbaugh saying, look, we're going to have to open it up in the second half. And that's exactly what they did. They put they put Joe Flacco in the shotgun and the a lot of no huddle and the 
Patriots had absolutely no answer for it in that second half. They scored 21 unanswered points. The defense also took over. Coincidentally, we had a, a the biggest play of Bernard Pollard's career to to basically take off the head of uh, of Ridley for that fumble. We had uh, interceptions. We had Haloti Nada running down Brady. Um, all kinds of fun stuff happening in the second half. Pernell McPhee really took over that game in a lot of ways. But it was Flacco who really brought the, brought the team back with 240 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Uh, he outplayed Brady, who had a 62 rating in the game, even though he had 320 yards. Um, and this really extended the outstanding playoff run he's had, ran him to eight touchdowns and no interceptions in that 2012 postseason. Yeah, and I think just one of those games against the Patriots that, that continued sort of that narrative that the Ravens weren't afraid of the Patriots, right? Where it mm-hmm. seemed like everybody else in the AFC who would have to face them in the playoffs would sort of crumble under the mental, you know, sort of pressure of going in there. And and just because of what you mentioned, the record, you know, of never having lost when they were up at halftime, you know, just all of that. And the Ravens somehow would always find a way in those games or, or mostly in those games to be competitive and take a couple of them. You know, it's more than competitive, you know, actually take a couple of those games. And another one that I rewatched and, and just something that stood out to me that I kind of just had forgotten about was just how good Dennis Pitta was at getting open. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't a guy that was like some, you know, you know, super fast guy who's going to run down the seam and blow by people, but just knowing how to get open, knowing how to set guys up, and the connection that he had with Flacco was just really special. Yeah, it's, it's a couple things about Pitta. During Pitta's rookie year, so it's 2010, Flacco and he were at the movie theater, and they used to go to the movies fairly regularly. They were, he, it was his best friend on the team. And they, they'd be out in the Hunt Valley movie theater, and uh, I, I saw Flacco and Pitta there, and I recognized Flacco, and I didn't recognize Pitta. And so I, I got my picture taken with Joe Flacco, and I, it seemed like Dennis Pitta kind of sh- felt like he should have been in the photo or something because he was kind of awkwardly on the side, <laughs> didn't know whether to get in or stay on. But it was an odd kind of a moment. But uh, I'm sorry, Dennis, for that. I'm sorry for not recognizing at the time. And I would have loved to have you in that photo anyway. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one that ever happened with. But uh, but uh, the other people thought it was Flacco's brother or something like that because <laughs> he's a tall guy as well. But you, you, I want to want to talk about Pitta a little bit in terms of that game in particular because the Ravens are still down 13-7 early in that second half and Pitta caught a pass at the five yard line and somehow held on despite a ridiculous helmet to helmet destruction and uh, you know went flat on his back and Flacco was going after the referee like crazy for the helmet to helmet call not that it would have made a big difference because it would only been a two yard advance to get him to the two yard line instead I guess it would have been a first down that would that would have been something but but then on the very next play Pitta shook loose in the end zone and caught the ball. And that was kind of the ultimate in-your-face moment for Dennis Pitta in his career to to really stick that ball on the ground at that point. I, I remember that from what I just rewatched. Those two plays, I remember that exactly what you're talking about. And I'm, I'm seeing that hit and I'm thinking, how how is this guy still in the game? How come there's no evaluation taking yes. place? You know what's yeah. going on here. But then, like you said, he gets up. They go to the next play. He runs a great route, shakes a guy, and and basically hits him with a crossover, like a basketball move, and just gets open and uh, catches a touchdown. I was like, man, sometimes you you forget, you know, just how good their connection was uh, because of you know time passing and kind of I think people focus on you know Pitt at the end with his hip and that kind of thing, but just forget just how good he was. Yeah, a hell of a player, that's for sure. And he and he definitely had a huge highlight in this next game we're going to talk about. Number two, 
Got some criticism for this one, but number two is the is the Denver game, the Mile High Miracle on uh, January 12th of 2013. We continue with the it really didn't matter what the weather was. And this was a game where, where tremendously cold weather. Um, Manning, at this point in his career, very much had a noodle of an arm. And it really showed up on this day is that he really couldn't throw down the, the ball down the field effectively. But more so, he lost a lot of his accuracy because of the cold weather, I felt. He was trying to play without a glove. There was talk about him practicing by sticking his arm in an ice bucket and then trying to throw the ball. Well, that tells you, that tells me anyway, there's a problem if he has to practice like that, you know, in order to try and get ready for this. Well, I mean, Joe Flacco, just another day at the office. He goes out there without his gloves and and he uh, is able to throw the ball very effectively. Three touchdowns, no interceptions, a 116 passer rating. He had almost 20 yards per completion in the game. So I think he might have competed like 18 passes for 331 or there, thereabouts in the game. Um, you know, he had so many big passes in that game. It's not just the one. Of course, we remember the 70-yard touchdown to, to Jacoby Jones, the way he slipped up in the pocket past Von Miller, the outstretched hand of Von Miller, and able to throw that ball all the way down the right sideline uh, over the under-angled Raheem Moore and to uh, – uh, into Jacoby's hands just as if it was a punt coming down. It, it was funny to hear how much Deardorff was focused on blaming Raheem Moore for the play. You think as an offensive player, Deardorff, a you know, left tackle in the NFL for many years and a Hall of Famer, would be giving some praise to Joe Flacco, but he just couldn't stop beating on Raheem Moore from that. I really loved Deardorff as an announcer. I thought he brought a lot of energy to the games, but, the, but the, that particular game I thought was not his finest moment in terms of announcing a Ravens game. No, poor Raheem Moore, man. I mean, not only did he get beat up by Deardorff, I really think that that stuck with him. Like, I, I don't know that he had much longer of an NFL career. I kind of remember some stories about it was really hard for him to kind of put that play behind him and sort of move on. So uh, I think that one kind of really stuck with him. But like you said, I, another one I went back and rewatched and, and – couple things i didn't remember i forgot this was a double ot game number one Mm -hmm. i forgot about that and then just some of those other big plays and just how badly tory smith was beating champ bailey oh yeah running past champ bailey oh yeah (laughs) and i know champ bailey at that point in his career was not you know the guy he was when he was younger but uh that really kind of stood out i was like man i did not remember that like just throwing these bombs over top of champ bailey's head uh but yeah obviously you remember the uh you know, the Hail Mary play, and that's the one that uh, should be remembered. But, yeah, Joe Joe was – it just seemed like another consistent thing. Just when he was on in these games, sort of critical games, when he was really on and in rhythm, he put the ball absolutely wherever he wanted to put it. Uh, and and it, it just was such an impressive thing to watch as I went back and watched some of these games, just to see him when he was on. You know, you talk about quarterbacks getting hot and – I, I, I'd put him right in there, you know, if you have that conversation just about quarterbacks on hot streaks and how well they play when they're hot. He, he's got to be in there with the top guys when he was on. I mean, he was really on. Yeah, he's certainly – the balls he threw were just gorgeous. And if you – you know, we now have Lamar Jackson to watch, and he throws a lot of flutter balls. And, we had, you know, we had certainly other quarterbacks like Bowler who could just never seem to get the angle on the football right. Even if they could throw a tight spiral, they couldn't get the angle on the football right and something was wrong. We have you know, Steve McNair, who obviously had a lot of arm strength issues in in his time here. We had all the other guys between Testaverde and uh, Bowler who were a bunch of sad sacks consecutively coming in and not able to do it. But Flacco, the one thing, you know, you, uh, uh, 
you say a lot of great things about Joe Flacco, but but the way he threw a football was just the way a football was supposed to be thrown in terms of the rotation of the ball, how the pass looked. You know, it, it, the receivers would often remark that he would throw the ball remorselessly hard in terms of being willing to break their fingers on a route. Um, you know, maybe that's not ideal, but on the other hand, you know, you you, you got to take advantage of separation when you have it. You got to be able to put the ball right on the on the guy's hands when you can, and it probably does also reduce the chance of interception slightly to be throwing it very hard like that. So anyway, uh, I did want to talk, as you mentioned, about the other three passes in that game that were very big. But he had that 59-yard pass to Torrey Smith that was at the end of the first quarter that got the Ravens even. Not even the end of the first quarter, five minutes into the game because they went up on that punt to. Hillman, was it? Who's the guy? Who was the receiver? Oh, Trend, Trendon Holiday, right? Yeah, Trendon Holiday. That's it. So he returned it. He returned a punt and a and a kickoff for the touchdown that same game, and he uh, uh, got the fifty nine yard answer uh, to Torrey Smith very quickly after that. Then at the end of the half, this is a play that's oh, the sergeant forgotten. With thirty six seconds left, he had a thirty two yard touchdown to Smith down the right sideline, and you know he scored at the end of each half on these touchdowns, which was, which was huge. And then in the first overtime, getting back to the Pitta connection, they were on their own three yard line, third and 13. They were about to lose that game by punting and then allowing Manning to, you know, have a 15 yard drive or so to, to win the football game. And he completed a 24 yard seam pass down to, to Pitta that was just perfectly thrown. Not only was it perfectly thrown, it was also a good pat catch by Pitta. There was only a very small area to get it between two bracketed defenders. Pitta not only went up, caught the ball, but also took a big hit and held on. And uh, I, for my money, that's the greatest catch of Dennis Pitta's career. It's certainly the most meaningful in terms of, of what it did for the Ravens, but uh, but definitely a huge uh, a huge play in that game, and uh, and got the Ravens out of uh, out of purgatory there on the three yard line. Yeah, that was an awesome catch. It really was. That I mean, that's that's one of those trust balls where. And, and I, when I say that, it doesn't mean like you're just throwing it up, you know, it's some kind of prayer attempt. I mean, I'm sure that's something that they've worked on and they developed that chemistry. But you throw that in that space, in that space to that guy because you know he's going to make the catch. Yeah. Uh, and so that that was just one of those classic trust balls. And you're right. I never thought about it in those terms, but I'd, I'd be hard pressed to think of a bigger catch just in terms of the gravity of the situation than than that one for Pitta. Mm-hmm. All right, so now we move on to the number one game, which is his Super Bowl MVP performance against the 49ers, of course. Uh, a lot of great quarterbacks have gone down to New Orleans and won their first Super Bowl there, Terry Bradshaw among them. I think Tom Brady is also among them. So it very great place for first-time Super Bowl-winning quarterbacks. Uh, he really got it done in that game, three touchdowns, no interceptions again, captain 11-0, Touchdown interception uh, postseason, which is of course historic. Um, his three first half, his three touchdowns were all in the first half. They included that 56-yard bomb to Jacoby Jones. That I think a lot of people forget. The Ravens went down the field on the previous drive. They attempted a fake field goal. Do you remember that, where Justin mm-hmm. Tucker ran the ball, and the the 49ers were very cleverly had. Uh, 
Willis, I believe, was still on the field yeah, on that play, and he and he's the one who made the tackle by the right sideline, kept him um, kept him out. But uh, but anyway, um, Tucker uh, uh, didn't convert that opportunity. But the but the Ravens held them on defense. They got the ball back, and then they threw the fifty six yard bomb to Jacoby Jones. So it didn't really look as bad in those terms when they had sacrificed three for the field position and the and the uh, and the subsequent touchdown. But that that move by Jacoby Jones, a lot of people thought he should have been the MVP of that game with the big return and that the great move he made to get in the end zone on that 56 yard play. I just I don't think I've ever seen a pivot and reverse that quickly on a one on one move as as we saw there from Jacoby. It was, it was all choreographed. So he knew he was going to do it. So he took one step to the right and then cut back to the left and and beat everybody to the corner of the end zone there. Really uh, uh, a, a terrific play. The other play for Flacco that I really remember from that game was the third and one audible for might have been about a 15 yard pass to Anquan Bolden by the right sideline in the fourth quarter. So the, the lead had been cut to two and the 49ers had just failed the two point conversion to tie. And the Ravens really didn't want to give the ball back to the 49ers only up to with the possibility of a field goal going ahead. So they, they uh, engineered this drive on third and one. They obviously had a run called. Flacco checked out of it, the line of scrimmage. Sims called him out for checking out of it before the play happened. And they completed the pass to Bolden, and and they continued to move down and eventually got the field goal to put him back up five. Yeah, I actually tweeted a clip out of that play because I didn't remember it at you know when, when we were preparing for this and talking about doing this. So uh, when you really slowed it down and, and looked at one of the, the replay angles that they showed, it almost looked like the defender got his hand in front of yes. Bolden's face mask. Like he literally couldn't see the ball, mm. but yet was somehow still able to squeeze it just for, you know, doing this tens of thousands of times, right? Just making catches. He just knew that right at this moment, here's where my hand should be because the ball should be right here at this moment. And he still makes the catch. And the guy's literally got his arm in between and he still can't get the ball out of Anquan's hand. And Anquan comes down with the catch. And, you know, I, I remember it being a big play, but I didn't know just how, you know, the degree of difficulty of that catch until I went back and rewatched it and was just like, man, I, I don't know that he actually even saw that ball. But so somehow he, he was able to make the catch. He has hands up in front of his face. Then he drew his hand back a little bit, and it's still between his arms. Yeah. And, and you know, I, this goes back to the earlier point about Bolden. It's just – the thing that was at risk wasn't the catch there. It was the risk that that I believe it was Rogers, yeah, uh, was Carlos a corner, Rogers. Carlos Rogers, was going to lose his arm on that play, <laughs> and and it, you know it's just Bolden is you know was he was definitely holding on to that football, and if it meant he was going to rip off Rogers' arm at the elbow, he's going to do that too, and uh, he came down with a very impressive play, and uh, you know I, I I I honestly do understand why people were upset that Bolden was let go the next year. I mean, obviously they had to pay Flacco and they didn't have the money to pay Bolden. And they, they were, it was down to releasing him or trading him for some very small uh, recycling value, I'll call it, you know, and, and they ended up getting only a six round pick. Don't look at that as they traded Anquan Bolden for a six round pick. The Ravens realize Anquan's, Anquan Bolden's value of the organization. I still think there's a chance, particularly if the Ravens were to go through a dry spell of activity that a player like Anquan Bolden is going to make the Ring of Honor at some point. The other guy who who I think honestly deserves it from this era is Matt Burke for his outstanding play at center. You know, he's another guy who probably could go. And then we still haven't gotten Kelly Gregg inducted, so I don't think either of those guys are going until Kelly Gregg goes. So uh, uh, 
still good amount of bench strength on the Ravens ring of honor. That's uh, that's exciting that they won't have to dip too far down again uh, to, 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 to let in a player who's a little bit below the line. Absolutely. And two, two, two things there. I just one about Bolden and then one about Flacco back to the game. So, and only because I was rewatching these games, I don't know what made me rewatch the, the next season. Cause at that point, Bolden was with the 49ers. And the first game of the next season, he goes off for like 11 catch, 200 yard game with Colin Kaepernick at quarterback. I guess, you know, just to show people, hey, I, I still got it. You know, I haven't lost anything, uh, whatever. But I, that one just kind of like caught my attention. Like, wow, this guy, you know, just just really kind of wanted to remind everybody just what he was all about. And then back to the game. And I think, again, this kind of just speaks to who Flacco was as a person. I remember a story about the Super Bowl MVP and, you know, they're telling him he's the MVP and they're explaining to him what all that meant. And somebody says he gets a car and he's talking off to the side to somebody. I don't know if it's his wife or somebody. He's like, I get a car. They're actually going to give me a car. <laughs> and just, you know, you hear the, these stories consistently about him just kind of being a regular guy. Like even when he signed his first big extension, going to McDonald's, you know, whether, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But just you hear all these stories about just how much of a regular sort of down to earth guy that he was. And you saw that throughout his time here and you saw it this year in a very difficult situation for him, right? When he's finally healthy, he's never been in this position where he's healthy enough to play, but is not the starter. And you know, that report that he talked to John Harbaugh and said, Hey, I'm not going to be a problem in this. I understand what you're doing. I understand what this is about and I'm not going to be a problem. So just all of that speaks to just his, his character and sort of how self-aware he was and just his gauge of situations, right? Even even if you want to correlate that to his on-field play when he's in those big yeah. game situations, just how sober he was. Just seemed to be a guy who just really understood situations in general and just said, hey, you know what? I'm going to be a pro about this. I'm going to be just who I am, you know? And, and I really appreciate it. Uh, that about him, not just about, you know, sort of what happened at the end here this season, but just throughout his career, just, you know, really appreciate who he was as a guy and how he handled everything during his time here. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll say this, that that's not an average guy to be able to, to accept the demotion as classily as he did and still be a supporter of Lamar Jackson during the, during the process. And, you know, you, we've seen some video on the bench of him and Griffin and Jackson talking together and the two of them kind of coaching him up on how they go one, two, three through the reads and whatnot. Uh, it's just, it's very impressive that those guys were able to, to, you know, put the team first and whatnot. It obviously was a very successful formula down the stretch. And so there were, there was good reason to do it, but there was also times when I thought, you know, it should have been Flacco in the ball game um, for quarterback sneaks. The Ravens had some failures down the stretch in those, and it would have been really nice to see him in there. And other times, in in you know short drives at the end of a half, I think it would have been nice to see Flacco in the game. But anyway, Flacco did not get upset about that. He obviously understood what the plan was and was probably a little more clued into that. But it's it's very good that Flacco was able to just sit there and not act like a pissed off guy about that. He, he a lot of people ascribed that to him for the way early in the season. He'd been seeming like he was disinterested in terms of lining up on the right when flat, when when Jackson was in the game and, and taking a shotgun snap and then not moving. And I thought that was really a failure of the coaches to not actively try and take another player out of the play by having Flacco move backwards. And they eventually, by the way, did shift that about six or seven weeks into the season. But they kind of wasted some time, unfortunately, with that. But uh, I, I, Flacco's 
behavior is is nothing but exemplary in terms of getting through that. If 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 you point to unexemplary behavior, and that's not what we're really trying to do today. Obviously, this is a very much a feel good episode. But there were other times in his career where his relationship, particularly with his offensive coordinator, would get kind of stormy. And it, you, you could see how Flacco might have been a difficult talent to coach at times. But but it's not – in terms of his ability to accept his own role on the team, I, I great teammate in terms of, uh, uh, of of what he was as far as I could see. And to your point about, you know, his, his sort of – and I think some of what you're talking about there is just his his – self-confidence. I mean, this is real strong belief in himself and his ability. Uh, I just listened to this. I had to take a trip to Ohio, so I listened to it in a car audio book. John Feinstein uh, did a book called The Quarterback, and it talks about, I, I think the subtitle is like the NFL's most important position, and he covers a couple of different quarterbacks, and Flacco's one of them, and I think the bulk of it is focusing on the season that they lost to the Patriots, I think the 2014 season, Um and, you know, he talks about Alex Smith in there and he talks about a couple other guys, I think Ryan Fitzpatrick and a couple other guys. But it's really a kind of cool behind the scene look at Flacco because he got, you know, some some access that you would expect a reporter of his uh, experience and background to get. And I remember one of the stories he talked about was um, going into the Super Bowl. Right. And everybody thinking about Flacco turning down the contract offer. Oh, I bet on myself. And he when he talked to Feinstein, he told Feinstein that. I really didn't look at it that way. He said, everybody said, oh, I'm betting on myself because I believe so much in myself. And he's like, of course I believe in myself. But he said, I really didn't look at it as I was betting on myself. He said, I understand. I understood the quarterback market. Somebody was going to pay me, whether it was Baltimore or another team. So somebody was going to pay me. So I wasn't really worried about, you know, turning down that offer because he said, I thought I was worth more than that. So I was perfectly happy to just, you know, let let the thing play out and see what happens. So I think all of that and there's some other great stories in there, too. So it's, it's kind of a cool thing to check out. But all of that kind of feeds into just this, you know, really you know, self-confidence that he had and in, in belief in his ability. Yeah. Yeah. We, we so, saw that uh, classic down to earth, uh, Joe, this week as photos came out of him at, at the Denver airport flying commercial, just like you or I would. And, uh, of course, it was no surprise to us that the Ravens were going to uh, get rid of Flacco. Maybe a surprise that they were able to trade him and find a partner. Since we don't have a mailbag this week, it's the only question out there is about the trade. And how is this looking back at Joe's career? You picked out 21 plays that you did a good job of spreading it over the 10 years, even two games from this past season when people were very critical of Joe anyway. Um how do you see Joe in Denver? Is that the perfect setup for him? There, you mentioned throughout this with the 21 games, you mentioned basically how much football is a team player because you're mentioning Anquan Bolden, Ray Rice, uh, Derek Mason, De- Dennis Pitta, all these guys, which is one of the things fans would complain about in previous years that Joe's not working because he doesn't have the help. Do you see him having that in Denver? You, you want to start on that one? Yeah, sure. Um, Just in terms of of what I know about the team that they have, you know, up there right now, at least, you know, at the end of the season, he's got some young wide receivers to work with. Uh, Emmanuel Sanders, not one of them. Emmanuel Sanders, more of a veteran, but a a, a pretty solid uh, veteran receiver. But he's got uh, Cortland Sutton. Cortland Sutton is one of the young guys, a guy who I think going into last year's draft was kind of paying to the Ravens a lot. Uh, Big, you know, 6'3", 6'4", over 200 pound kind of guy. 
Uh, I think he's got another guy out of Penn State. I kind of forget his name, but he's kind of known for, you know, sort of having some route running ability. Um, got a couple running backs. Obviously, we saw Philip Lindsay uh, up close here, uh, at least briefly. Uh, obviously, he was ejected. Uh, from the game earlier this year against the Ravens, but briefly looked to be pretty good. Uh, and, and they've got Royce Freeman and a couple other backs. And I think, you know, they've got a couple other young tight ends too. So I think he's got some pieces there uh, on offense. I'm not really sure about the state of their offensive line, but I think he's got yeah. some pieces there on offense uh, for him to work with. I think the interesting thing for me is going to be what kind of offense are they going to run? Because I think people automatically have this association with Kubiak in Denver. Are they going to run and he was there in a consultant role, I, I believe. Kubiak had been there the last couple of years in some sort of consultant role in Denver. But I think he's no longer in that role when they went through the head coaching search uh, this offseason when they decided to go with Vic Fangio. So I don't I don't know that he's still there. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of offense they run. But if if Joe's healthy, uh, I'm not going to bet against him to, to you know sort of come back and, and show that he's still got some gas left in the tank. Yeah, I, I wouldn't bet against him either, but I will say this. Flacco had his worst season in 2013, and the one thing that was true about it is it was by far his worst offensive line with A.Q. Shipley at left guard and Geno Gradkowski at center. And he's he was very blessed during t- his time with the Ravens to play with consistently at least good offensive lines. At times, they were great offensive lines. In fact, for his first several seasons— um, he really did have a great offensive line. He, had, had, he came up and Jason Brown was the center. He had Yonda and Grubbs at guard. The sixth lineman was Chris Chester, who ended up getting a big contract with the Redskins and playing pretty well there. And he had tackle. They had Jared Gaither when Jared Gaither was actually trying and was one hell of a football player. And they had on the right side, they, they had Anderson, who was at the end of his career, but still playing very well. And I, you know, I, I've often wondered whether or not Flacco could have had that same success. The very next year, he got Matt Burke at center, and of course, Matt Burke was a fantastic player and kept that line together for years. You know, they maintained the interior offensive line of of Grubbs and Yanda, meaning that Flacco faced very little interior pressure during those years before 2013. And they had some problems at tackle. They had, when they moved or to left tackle, they had problems. They had a little bit of problems in in Ricky Wagner's first year. Uh, with him not being that great as a as a as a player, but then Wagner grew into a good right tackle after that. I, I'm just I, I don't know if Flacco could have been the same quarterback, could have been as good f- with uh, with a not good offensive line. And he's going to go into a challenging situation in Denver. It's it's not a good line, and uh, you know they certainly got problems. They had injuries last year as well, but. Uh, that wasn't the whole story, and 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 we'll see if they uh, if they can hold up and give Joe what they need. I, I if I were Denver, that's where I'd be trying to make investment even more than getting him one speedy receiver who can be the new Troy Smith to draw pass interference calls for him. All right, and uh, Kubiak is now an advisor with the Vikings, so he won't mm. be around to help out this year. Um, okay. Hey, Josh, uh, can I can I shoot in a question? Throw <laughs> one. All right. I'm sorry. I know we're going long, but right. just because just because Ken is, is more well versed in this than me. What do you think about the reported compensation? I know it's not official yet, but if it's a fourth round pick for Flacco, what, what, what do you think about that? Um, I, I can't say I'm tremendously excited, but uh, but I'm, I don't think it's bad compensation. It's 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 in the ballpark. I, I was more optimistic when I heard he'd been traded and I just saw, you know, a report of it that, that because it had been done early, that it might be some better compensation. Cause you want to be either the, the first deal done 
to, to, to get more compensation. We really see that in the free agent market when you see how much free agents sign for and they're in the when they're fighting for the very first guys. And then you realize there's a there's a fairly substantial bargain bin of players still out there. Well, with quarterbacks, often it can be that that you want to be the first in and make a good trade or you want to wait and trade the guy in camp when that first big injury happens and there is no other alternative. And then you, you can really get something for him. So, I, you know, could they have gotten more? Maybe. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm fairly happy with a fourth round pick. If I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned that it might be we get a fourth and we give back a sixth or something. Mm, so, yeah. uh, you know, I, I don't I, I can't say I've ruled that possibility out yet. Yeah, that's true. We haven't seen the official yet. I guess that's that's not for a while still. But uh, yeah, just just wanted to get your feel on that. That's that's How interesting. Do you feel about I, I, you know, I'm, that's still something that I'm I'm trying to to get better at in terms of valuation. I think you and I have had this conversation before. I'm a little more comfortable with evaluating players and sort of on field stuff than I am with valuation, which which really maybe is is even more important in some instances uh, than than what you see on the field. But um, I, I guess I was actually a little surprised. I probably looked at it the other way. I didn't know if they could get something above a fifth or a six for him, mm-hmm. uh, just because I was thinking about his contract. Um, so I was a little bit surprised that they got a fourth. And then I know Denver had two fourths. I'm not sure which one. They had their original yeah, fourth, and they got one from the Texans. So I'm not sure which one the Ravens are supposed uh, to be getting. I saw a report that it's supposed to be their their first fourth-round pick, and it does make a little bit of difference, less difference in that kind of round than it would in, say, the third or second round. But but still, it's a you know you want to be higher up in the round if you can be. If the Ravens can repeat anything like their 2016 success with that pick, you know, basically if they redrafted any one of those five players again, I'd be thrilled by it. You know, they'd be Dixon or or Young or uh, Moore was probably the worst player in the round, or Derek Hen- or sorry, not uh, Willie Henry, or who's the fifth guy, the offensive lineman Alex Lewis. Yes, yeah. So, so anyway, if they could draft anybody who was a random player from those those five, would be terrific. Well, I know it's DaCosta running the show now and not Ozzy, but I've, I've seen a lot of people say, hey, uh, based on their track record with third and fourth round picks, maybe it's better that they've got a fourth round pick than like a second round pick. Well, that's I think that is it's an important point to make is that is that DaCosta really dominated the bottom rounds of the Ravens draft because he was in charge of the Ravens small school scouting. And so they were able to consistently find value down in those lower rounds. I think they had Lardarius Webb more scouted than anybody else. I think, and, and this is when they've reached up into the top rounds for a small school pick. They they also got had more scouting of Brandon Williams yeah. in, in you know being a third round pick also. But then they then they got players like Matt Judon as a fifth round pick out of Grand Valley State. You know, I I still have hope that Zach Sealer is going to be a, a a player. He didn't see much action this year, but. You know, the, the, the position was very crowded. I think he's got a chance to play more this next year, particularly if they don't sign Brent Urban. So anyway, we, I, they've, 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 they've done very well with small school scouting over the years in terms of, of uh, getting value in those lower rounds. All right. Well, there are there's still three weeks until this trade can even be official. So uh, there's plenty of time in this offseason left. Ken, what are you up to in this offseason outside of all the uh, Alliance football studying you're doing? <laughs> so the the big thing we'll be looking at this offseason is when the Ravens have an acquisition, we'll take you into it with a deep dive as quickly as we can. And we'll have some real analysis of this. Having Michael on the on the show will be extremely good for that. I have my own specific methodology of going back and trying to, uh, you know, making sense of trends and patterns. And Michael has, has his own evaluation methods that are very good. And, you know, you've seen that on Twitter and just how 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 good his 
remarks are relative to that. I think we're going to have some a lot of fun if the Ravens have a key acquisition coming up. All right. Um, yeah, well, that'll be exciting. Um, Michael, why don't you throw out your Twitter handle out there so we can make sure to, that the listeners are out there and following you and getting ready for the 2019 season. Sure. It's uh, at Abukari. So that's A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Um, I do tend to throw out most of, of, of my stuff on Twitter. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be writing any pieces this over the offseason for Russell Street Report. I mean, they kind of left it open for me and said, hey, if there's something that you really want to talk about, um, you know, you can do it. But I'm kind of all over the place in the offseason. I mean, some people have already seen I tried to do the, the charting of uh, Lamar Jackson's throws. I actually went back and charted every throw uh, that he made broke it down by route type, and now I'm in the process, the painstaking process. I've, I've done this in the past, but it's so tedious, of uh, padding the plays. So it's the old-fashioned paper, pencil, drawing up each play, all 22 guys on oh, the wow. field and how they move. So you take, I've, I'm only – I just started maybe two weeks ago, and I'm only like six plays into the Cincinnati game. <laughs> so I've got a very long way to go. But uh, I'm also uh, a huge fan of the draft. So I'm always looking at guys who might be connected to the Ravens or I see as maybe, you know, fits for the Ravens. And so I'm kind of looking at that and tweeting out some of that stuff. So, yeah, follow me on Twitter and uh, hopefully, you know, I get a chance to interact with folks out there and uh, uh, it ought to be an exciting offseason. Yeah, he's a, he's a great Twitter follow. I'll just say uh, Michael is and, and he's very responsive and very detailed in terms of his responses he gives people. So, and, you know, I, I like to do that same thing. I, I sometimes I'll I'll fall down on it, but I try and answer every question with a, with a, everything that has a question in it. That's not an obvious who the hell do you think you are question. So, yeah. and <laughs> those are my favorite. Those yeah. are my favorite. I love those. I know you've been trying to teach me to stay away from those, but I take the bait every time. All right. Well, anyway, um, uh, I'm at Film Study Ravens. Uh, Josh, tell them about uh, Birdland Sports and what's going on there. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to tell you about Section 336 because it's baseball season, and that's that's the show for the Orioles. And as much as we're going through this rebuild and all and looking to the next three to five years, it all starts now with the guys who showed up to camp this past week. So check out Section 336 for a bunch of Orioles talk uh, where you really get to know the, the, the players. And uh, this is the time to get on board so you're ready when they, they're good in a few years. So I'm going to get on board. I'm admittedly not a big baseball fan. And uh, – I've been listening even before you guys invited me to join. I've been listening and, uh, you know, heard Josh talk about 336. And I'm I'm going to start listening and I need to get on board because I need to I need to to become a better verse uh, baseball fan because I'm I'm terrible right now. <laughs> They've got an analytics guy in house now. It's going to be very exciting to to, to watch, a, you know, a true sabermetrician kind of run the organization and have have his chance to to uh, to do it the right way. Yeah, whether it works or not, it's going to be an interesting couple of years. Yeah. So it'll be fun. Hopefully uh, an interesting 20. But we'll... Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we will speak again soon. If you have loved ones that rely on your income, you need life insurance. But finding the best quote shouldn't take a lifetime. 
With Policy Genius, you could save 50% or more by comparing quotes from America's top insurers. First, head to policygenius.com. In minutes, Policy Genius will compare prices starting at as little as $1 a day. You might even be eligible to fast track your coverage with a no exam policy. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. If you have any questions, their team of licensed independent experts is on hand to help. In fact, Policy Genius's award winning service has a five star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Make today the day you cross life insurance off your list and get protection for your loved ones. You could save 50% or more by comparing quotes. To get covered, head to policygenius.com today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.